0: Welcome to season two of the Price Lab Podcast. Most of our conversations this season will be with guests to the Digital Humanities Seminar. These are usually in-person lunchtime discussions, but of course, this is a pretty unusual year. The seminar is being held remotely due to the ongoing pandemic, and we are recording these podcasts remotely as well. We think they sound pretty good, but please excuse any echoes or other glitches while we're temporarily unable to use our usual recording studio. Lauren Tilton is Assistant Professor of Digital Humanities in the Department of Rhetoric and Communication Studies at the University of Richmond and Research Fellow in the Digital Scholarship Lab. Her work fits loosely within visual studies, but she has introduced many of us to something she and her frequent collaborator, Taylor Arnold, called distant viewing, a suite of methods as well as a theoretical framework that uses computers to look for meaningful patterns in image data.
1: What is your DH origin
0: story? How did you get into it?
1: My origin story begins in my first semester of graduate school at Yale. So I was taking a class called Introduction to Public Humanities with Laura Wexler, and we were asked to create a public humanities project. I drew on my previous experience at the National World War II Museum, working with the FSA OWI collection. So this is a collection of 170,000 photographs from the Great Depression and World War II. I've always found it really fascinating and interesting, but as a part of my work at the World War II Museum, I was using it to actually look for photographs of the war as opposed to the Great Depression, which it has been primarily known for. And so my experience trying to navigate through the collection at the Library of Congress had been a challenging one. They basically had an open search Box and there was no other great way to find the images. So for my Intro to Public Humanities project, I partnered with Taylor Arnold in the statistics department and said, hey, can we think of a new way to organize these, these photographs using digital techniques? And so we came up with the idea of photogrammer, which was to map the photographs using the metadata from the images. So we could have this map and instead you could go click on the counties or state where the photographs were and you'd have a timeline. You could see the images from the Great Depression through to World War II. We came up with that idea of photogrammer as the final project. Along the way, an academic technologist named Ken Panko visited the class and said, y'all should know about this new area or this newer area called digital humanities. And I was like, cool, that sounds neat. And then later I met with him to talk about this photogrammer project and he said, by the way, do you know you're doing digital humanities? And I was like, really? That's cool. He introduced me to the NEH grants and for the final project, we put the grant in and then we got it. We were all shocked <laughs> and lo and behold, we've got an NEH grant from the Office of Digital Humanities sort of as a rubber stamp saying, hey, you're, you're doing digital humanities.
0: How do you describe distant viewing?
1: So we call it a a theory and method for using computer vision to analyze visual culture, particularly images and then moving into moving images. And part of the argument is that we understand computer vision as a way of seeing and inculcated in cultures of visuality that we can critique their ways of seeing and the cultures of visualities that it produces. That opens up an entire analytical frame for, interrogating the, the possibilities and cautions of computer vision. And we also think of it as a method for analyzing visual culture. We have to construct a code system, annotate that code system, apply that code system across an entire set of images. And then we can analyze those annotations to then open up new inquiry about images at scale. One of the things that led to distant viewing was our work thinking through, and by our work, I mean, I'm talking also about Taylor Arnold and I working together, was our work on thinking through how we could bring visual culture theory and computer vision together, because computer vision, we thought was pretty under-theorized from a humanities perspective, and that actually adding a theoretical and methodological frame to our understanding of how computer vision works and the epistemological claims behind it and the cultures of visuality that are embedded in it um, could really help us better understand and better critique computer vision and the kind of work it's doing in the world.
0: When I first heard about distant viewing, the only thing I had to kind of latch onto was Lev Manovich's writings on computer science and new media. And that goes in a particular direction, and it always struck me as more like conceptual art rather than a theoretical framework. What you're doing is a little different. Can you say a little more about that?
1: We really build off Lev's work and are really indebted to it. But as his new book says, his is about the study of contemporary digital image culture in mm. an online environment or, or in digital spaces, because right. it really brings together his, his great work on new media and online digital cultures, work on still images in particular, and brings those together. But people have used cultural analytics in a much larger frame than Mm -hmm. he has actually written in his most recent book. So we're kind of coming at a similar set of questions about how do we analyze images at scale, but we're coming at it from a different sort of theoretical Mm -hmm. and methodological frame.
0: You know, I've been working on the Collections as Data project, and we would often receive proposals that, for various reasons, wanted to improve facial recognition software so that libraries or archives could use computers to process collections or look for famous people or do things like that. None of the proposals were coming from a bad place necessarily, but we were like, do we want to encourage people to make this technology better, just given what we know about the way it gets used sometimes? I was really torn because if if we don't do it, someone else will, and maybe we can find someone who can bring a social justice framework to it. But it's just really tricky. Uh, So I'm wondering how you think about these ideas.
1: I think we're struggling with the same set of tensions that you've mentioned. There is a challenge that these algorithms now exist, and particularly the neural networks exist. And we are always trying to walk this fine line between reimagining them and remaking them and do we participate in this <laughs> and i think we've tended to err on the side at this point of how can we reimagine what we can use these technologies for and how might they be able to further humanity's inquiry and scholarship that furthers our values and beliefs and commitments. And so that I think that's part of where we've settled on some of these questions and uh, challenges. This challenge is not unique to computer vision. I mean, for those who do spatial analysis, these are technologies of surveillance in the state as well, like GIS systems. Um, So it's part of a long set of technologies that are inculcated and problematic formations and commitments that we do not share
0: normally when people learn about computer vision ai and how neural networks work they learn about it through either the lens of technological innovation engineering or business so getting introduced to it through the frame of the humanities and the kinds of questions the humanities asks i think serves the purpose of making sure we all sort of understand what's going on with this technology uh, when we see it deployed in other less thoughtful ways.
1: If we rethink of computer vision as you know as a mode of communication, then we're responsible for what types of communication we are embedding in them and what we're going looking for and what we're trying to say through them. Mm. And by doing that, we become accountable in a new way to the messages they are sending. Mm-hmm. In other words, what they are encoding and then what they are decoding. And if we can reframe what we're doing, then it opens up a series of questions about what we're seeing and what we're asking these, these technologies to go see. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, that's the power of thinking about it as distant viewing, is that we actually bring it up one level. And then every time we use these, we say, Do we like what we're encoding are we comfortable with what we're decoding? And do those align? Do they not? Are they inculcated in problematic racial formations or racial essentialism or gendered notions that reproduce binaries? Do they have privileged ways of seeing objects that are through a colonial gaze? we're always having to ask that broader question about what we're doing. And I think the reason that frame is important is because companies and higher education and labs are building new kinds of neural networks all the time because they can sort of generalize from the technology to other features. So distant viewing allows us to think about no matter what the latest version of the neural network is or what kind that we're constantly having to ask those questions along the way, about the messages it's actually looking for or sending out into the world. And that's, I think, a fundamental reframing of what computer vision is. It's not just a technology, an instrument, a tool. If we rethink of it as a mode of communication and a way of seeing in the world, then we're accountable to the social cultural beliefs that we embed inside of them and produce on the other side of them. I think distant viewing in some ways is about that computer vision is here. It's not going anywhere. So how do we create deeply humanistic theories that allow us to think critically about these technologies and ways of knowing that are often produced without attention to those features and characteristics? We really think that we can use distant viewing to to pursue humanistic inquiry, inquiry from the film studies, media studies, visual culture studies, American studies, and others, because like our colleagues in computational literary studies have said, if we can think about computation as a way to scale up our forms of evidence to produce different kinds of knowledge, Mm -hmm. and we're just beginning to figure out what might be possible. And so we also think distant viewing is a way that could make interventions in you know, visual culture studies or the visual side of digital humanities where we can ask new kinds of questions about, you know, media and film and TV and social media and images.
0: We always talk about collaboration in DH, but it tends to be like, here's a scholar and here's tech support for them. Or here's a scholar and here's someone in the library that does digitization. Mm -hmm. But what makes your partnership with Taylor different is that you're working on something together, but it's actually part of his research agenda as well as a statistician and the math department. So I want to hear more about how you navigate that. It sounds wonderful. Is it as wonderful as it sounds?
1: I have really enjoyed being able to collaborate with Taylor on these projects. Because I think one of the things we did early on was think about how my growing expertise in American studies and film and media studies combined with his growing expertise in statistics and machine learning and data science how we could bring them together like a Venn diagram as opposed to sort of mining each other's expertise or field. So I think that was really important. And then as we've navigated over the years, we figured out how to how, how to work better together. And part of that has been us both reading in each other's fields more and doing that translation work so we know that we're talking about the same ideas and concepts. So. And that sort of growing Venn diagram of uh, and translation work has been a really key part of the equation for our work together. The second thing that has been really key, I think, to growing to developing the collaboration was trying to figure out how we publish this kind of work and in what forms. The incentive structures for the humanities are very different than data science or statistics and or a ma- and he's inside of a math and computer science department. So we've had to navigate to what degree do we publish in a workshop at IEEE or in a digital humanities journal or do we publish, do we create software or data sets or digital public projects or is this algorithm going to be, are we going to release this algorithm until now or after it's been published? And and so there's all these like negotiations over the years to figure out the incentive structures. At least the key part for me was I had seen too many DH projects where an individual made claims to the project as their own and not only did not acknowledge the key interlocutors in those projects with them, from graduate students to academic technologists, to librarians, to uh, community members, to colleagues in other fields, they were then not sustainable projects because it became the ownership of one individual who had not built a collaborative, communicative environment, of mutual respect and expertise with their colleagues and that it's not a sustainable model it's not a generous model and it's not a version of higher education that i wanted to participate in or be a part of and it's not a labor environment that i ever want to participate in So you'll see in our publications, our staff from the Digital Scholarship Lab, the expertise of Rob Nelson, Justin Madrin, Nate Ayers at Yale, Peter Leonard, Trip Kirkpatrick, Ken Panko, Stacey Mables, who's now at Stanford, all these colleagues, Laura Wexler, of course, we always do our best to try to include everyone who's been participating in the work together and make sure there are co-publishers or co-authors and, and cited. We even do that with students now, our undergraduate students. They're on the papers with us. They're on the data sets with us. If they've done a fair amount of work on the project and they're really critical to it, they deserve credit. We've, we've not been perfect. We've not always done it right. We've really learned a lot, but starting from a position of collaborative scholarship where we are mutual and equal interlocutors actually results in better, more exciting, interdisciplinary scholarship and possibilities for DH.
0: When I was in college, I kind of felt like, you know, there were math and science kids on one side and humanities kids on the other and the math and science kids didn't get poetry and the humanities students didn't get numbers. Uh, Fortunately, the world isn't nearly as binary as my 19-year-old brain thought it was. But it is true that it can sometimes be tricky to fit technology training into a humanities curriculum so our students can effectively engage with all of this innovation, either as users or as critics. And at the same time, and for the same reasons, I'm eager to get humanities questions and perspectives into technology courses. I'm wondering if you have any tips on how to think about doing that.
1: So I do a lot of work in my DH classes to indicate to students that computational methods are for them too, and that they can program, and that it's not something that is exclusively the domain of the computer science department, but more importantly, it's a series of methods that will animate their curiosity in, in the humanities as well. And so one of the things I have found to be really effective in my classes is I now actually teach with R in in the class with students who've never seen programming before. And the goal is not for them to walk away learning R, but rather I want them to see what programming looks like and how it's basically uh, a process that can really support their inquiry and their questions. And over the course of the semester, students say, I had no idea what programming was. I'm not sure I'll do it permanently or forever, but now I understand what programming is. I feel like I can talk to my colleagues and friends over in math and CS. And I also just understand why it's so powerful and why I could, if I need to, if I want to learn more about this in the future and pursue some of these methods, I'll know where to get started. Many times students from communities that have not been encouraged to do math or programming will say, this is the first time someone has introduced these ideas in a way that I feel like I could actually do it. You know, my Intro to DH class started with three students and over five years, they're both full and they have wait lists. So we're creating this pipeline of students. I say, now go to Intro to Data Science go over to our math and CS department, they're excited to have you because you bring the theory and methods from all of your training in American studies, American communications, women, gender, and sexuality studies, and they want your voice over there because you're going to help show what's an interesting question to ask of this data and what can we actually learn from it?
0: Are you thinking about anything that DH needs to do in the wake of 2020 in its totality? All the things that happened, all the things that are still happening, all the things that will continue to happen. I know that's an unfair question. It's so big. Uh, I don't know how I would answer it if someone asked me.
1: Racial violence and social justice are not new to the last year. This is a systemic problem and challenge that's at the heart of this nation. And we work and live in this nation and are therefore accountable to those histories. And the wake of them And the ghosts that we need to address. And the last year is one more reminder of how much work we have to do. And I think that a lot of the efforts in DH to decolonize, to work toward an anti racist DH, and to figure out how the field, both through who is involved and who is studying inside of it, and what we're studying and how are making sure we're aware how those may or may not be contributing to those structures is really important and a reminder of the work we still have to do about that and i think we are doing we're starting to do a lot more of that work i think we could see through the ach conference through twitter um, amazing work particularly from latinx dh and black dh and other areas and that it's our work to continue to amplify and support that kind of work and we can all be a part of that together. I think that's really important because also one of the things I think is really important about some of the work we do in DH is a lot of our colleagues are working really hard to not just tell stories of violence and oppression, but of love and joy and creativity. And those DH projects, are, particularly those are public DH projects, expand beyond just our ne- our area of an academia. But they expand their reach to a much larger public and they have really transformative possibilities that those communities already know. (laughs) That's the reason they're doing that work. I'm not, you know, so I think that's part of the reminder right now. In terms of COVID, I've never been more committed to thinking critically about the collection and analysis of data. This is a moment where there have been huge debates about what counts, who counts. How we even put data together to understand what's happening. And it seems to me, at least, that making sure that that's a fundamental part of all of my classes and us all working together to realize the power of counting and quantification and what it can actually do to reveal structures of inequality or to reveal everything, reveal who's not getting access to vaccines, right? The fact that at times people weren't even counting that data or counting it right, correctly, means we need a whole new generation of thinkers who are going to think really critically about data in this world. And I think DH is among the best position to do that, because we bring not just the methods, but we bring a theoretical frame to it
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. We thank Michael and Vicki Price and the Mellon Foundation for their generous support.